alone, falsely accused, condemned to death. Who would follow such a man? Only those who knew him to be, as he is, the Son of God. But those who knew or who were beginning to know had run away and denied him. His captors mocked him as a king, though ironically he is. Nearly all who watched his questioning and torture and agonizing death mocked him as well. And yet, out of the words of one of his captors, the truth at last, truly this man was the Son of God. What response ought we to have to such a statement? Is it just the opinion of one Roman soldier? No, as we saw last week, Jesus made it clear, Mark 14:62, to the council of religious leaders that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, Jesus referred to himself as Son of Man. Their question was, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And he basically says, yes, I am the Son of God and the Son of Man, and I will return with power. Blasphemy and madness or the truth? C.S. Lewis said it this way, You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems obvious to me that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. The only right response for us is to follow Jesus, who is the Son of God. Follow the Son of God, who was betrayed to the Gentiles. We see this in verses 1 through 5. His betrayal, which fulfilled his word to the disciples. Back in chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus said, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Verse 5, chapter 15, verse 1, The council held a consultation and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Jesus' words fulfilled. Could he have avoided this? He could have probably avoided this by giving in to Satan's temptations that we see in Mark 1, verse 13. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted with Satan. Matthew gives us more details. Satan basically said, you can have all the kingdoms of the earth. All you have to do is worship me. You don't have to go through all this crucifixion nonsense. You don't have to go through this life of suffering and rejection. Worship me. It's all yours. I'll hand it over. Jesus said no. He willingly submitted to the Father's will. Mark 14, verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. And he had said earlier to the disciples, when they said, can I sit on your right or on your left, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus knew the great suffering that he was going to go through, but he went through it anyway in submission to the Father's will, in rejection of Satan's offer of the easy way out. Jesus did not defend himself. This reminds us, certainly, of the passage in Isaiah 53 where it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to slaughter and like a sheep that's silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. I don't think that that passage intends to show a complete silence uh, because he does, in fact, say a few words in response to Pilate 
and he said a few words in response to the religious leaders. But the difference is between the attitude of someone on death row who's desperately pleading for his life, I didn't do it, it's not fair, they shouldn't be doing this, that sort of thing, and someone who has quietly resigned himself, lets the accusations fall to the ground because they have no basis, and simply waits for what is to come. He's accused by false witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15 said that there was not to be an accusation brought against someone except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And yet, righteous Naboth is killed by Ahab in the scheme of his wife Jezebel to steal his land in 1 Kings 21. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, will similarly be accused. Jesus' witnesses, his own witnesses, couldn't agree, the ones that testified against him. We saw this at the end of chapter 14. The chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony, but their testimony was not consistent. They didn't agree on their lies before they brought him against him. Some said, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. But that's not really grounds to execute him. That's just a statement that he made. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. And Jesus did not answer. Both Pilate and the religious leaders characterized him as a political threat, the king of the Jews. And that phrase is repeated over and over again throughout this passage, but Mark makes it clear in the end of it when he has the testimony of the centurion, Jesus did not conceive of himself in this moment as the king of the Jews in terms of any kind of political power overthrowing Rome, uh, leading the people in rebellion. That was the false accusation against him. He came as the Son of God. John 19 makes it clear when he has further detail given about his conversation with Pilate, the question of who he is, where he came from. Pilate says, Don't you speak to me? Don't you know I have authority to release you and to crucify you? Jesus said, You would have no authority unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you as the greater sin. Earlier in chapter 18, Pilate says, Your own nation, the chief priests, delivered you. When it asked if he was the king of the Jews, uh, Jesus says, You're saying this on your own initiative? Did others tell you? Pilate says, Your own nation delivered you over. What have you done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting, so I'd not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So you are a king? You say that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate says, what is truth? When he has this response, it is as you say, it's important for us to note that Jesus actually just says, you say this. So we have the words supplied, it is as you say, I think to try to bring in a parallel to John 19. However, the phrase is just, you say this. It's not quite, and I can't confirm or deny this, but he's saying, this is the thing that you're accusing me of. He doesn't have to defend what he's done up to this point because it's been very clear that he has not come and said, I'm a king, follow me, let's overthrow Rome, let's rule over the earth. He came to preach the gospel. His kingdom was not the sort that they expected. A kingdom of greater power than any this world has ever known and yet not a kingdom that was ushered in with military force, but a kingdom that was demonstrated solely in the power of God. Again, referring to that passage in John, when Jesus has the crowd coming to arrest him, 
and they say, is this Jesus? And he says, I am. And they're knocked back on their feet. That's not swords and clubs and soldiers and armies and all of those sorts of things. That's God's power that characterized the kingdom that Jesus was ushering in. Jesus, as the Son of God, went willingly to his mock trial. As Peter says in his epistle, Jesus entrusted himself to a faithful creator in the midst of his suffering, but he didn't suffer unjustly. He did so with a purpose. There have been caricatures that have mocked the suffering of Jesus. Uh, There's a British group called Monty Python that came out with a movie called The Life of Brian that was characterized as, rightfully so, a degree of blasphemy. And basically, here's a guy who just sort of accidentally gets himself crucified because he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's sort of the attitude the world has about it. It's an unfortunate accident. He was just a guy who had some ideas that weren't accepted in his day, so he got himself killed over it. This was purposeful, intentional, according to God's plan, willing, all of those sorts of things. It was no accident. And it was for a purpose. It was not just happened that way, couldn't do anything about it. It was for a purpose. We are not only to follow the Son of God who's betrayed to the Gentiles, but follow the Son of God who traded place with sinners. Look at verses 6 through 15. The chief priests convinced the crowd to pressure Pilate to free the murderer Barabbas. Pilate had established this tradition to appease the people. Barabbas was clearly guilty. Notice the phrase here. Barabbas was imprisoned with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the insurrection. Not really a question of whether he was guilty. He's clearly guilty. He's one of the murderers who murdered during the rebellion as they rebelled. That's pretty much what Mark is saying here. Not an innocent guy. To the point that Jesus didn't protest the false accusations, Barabbas didn't ever protest the fact that he was guilty. He's clearly guilty. The crowd asked for Barabbas, a real political prisoner and a real threat to be set free. It's like, hey, here's the guy who didn't do anything, who gets arrested, and here's the guy who's killed a couple of people and burned down some houses and stolen things. We're going to let that guy go. Pilate gives them the chance to free Jesus, the innocent prisoner. Uh, Luke's gospel makes it clear that some of this is in connection with the mocking and all these sorts of things. I think Pilate thought, if I beat him and then let him go, they'll be satisfied. But the attitude of the crowd, and this isn't necessarily all in exact chronological order, or, or because... Mark's focus is not on saying this happened and then this happened and this happened exclusively. The focus is on saying Pilate's interaction with the crowd is this, this happens, all of these sorts of things. So um, the point is just to say the response of the crowd when Pilate asks them is crucify him, get rid of him. We want nothing to do with him. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. He already, it already says, Pilate knew that they handed him over because of envy, verse 10. And he says, what evil has he done, verse 14. What had Jesus done? Jesus had healed people. Jesus had taught things. Jesus had spent time with the poor and the oppressed that nobody wanted to do anything with. None of that was evil. 
Think back to the healing of the man on the Sabbath. Jesus asked the religious leaders, is it good to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm? Which one should we do? Should we kill people or should we make them better? He only does good throughout his entire ministry. And Pilate, I think, knows that he's got an innocent man standing in front of him. I think John makes this clear in his gospel. And yet, he gives in to the crowd. Fulfilling Jesus' words in Mark 9. Back in Mark 9, verses 12 and 13, what did Jesus say? He said, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And then, verse 31, The Son of Man is to be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Jesus already said all these things were going to happen. And it unfolds exactly as he said. In this section, we see that Jesus, as the Holy Son of God, is condemned in the place of a murderer by false witnesses who schemed to murder him, and an unjust ruler who bowed to the corrupt will of the people. Pilate had enough soldiers that he could have calmed the mob if he really wanted to. But he said, you know what, the easy way out is to let this one guy die. Which was actually much the attitude that the chief priests and scribes had. It's better that one man die and the nation survives than that he lives and everything is thrown into chaos and we lose all that we've worked for. Not only follow the Son of God, who traded place with sinners, but follow the Son of God, who endured ridicule and mocking from his enemies. The Romans gather their cohort in verse 16 to beat and mock and abuse Jesus. Luke 23 reveals Herod's role as well in this mockery. Uh, There's a degree to which here Mark is emphasizing the Roman soldier's role in it. However, it was taking place in Herod's palace. So Herod's there, the soldiers are there, all of them are present as this is going on. Their mocking caricatured his true nature as king and again fulfilled his words to the disciples. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles, he'll be mocked, he'll be beaten, he'll be despised. The purple robe's a sign of authority. The crown of thorns, a mockery of his right to rule. Here's a crown, but we're going to make it out of potentially a kind of thing vaguely like a cactus that has long thorns on it. There's actually a succulent called the crown of thorns that has really long spikes on it that when dried has sharp stabbing spikes that is the sort of thing that would have been growing in the wilderness near where they were. And they take that and they jam it into his head. A crown, but of torture, not of honor. He is the rightful heir, the son of David. Blind Bartimaeus sees it more clearly than the Roman soldiers in the crowd. The reed, I think, is in mockery of the scepter. They beat him with the reed, they spit on him, and then they kneel and pretend to bow before him. Think about this idea of the scepter. Genesis 49, what did the prophecy say? There will be one from Judah, and the scepter will not depart. And yet here it's mocked, it's rejected, it's used as an object of ridicule. We're going to use this stick instead of an actual scepter of a king. They bowed in ridicule, but someday all will bow in homage. Psalm 110 says, The Father says to the Son, Sit here until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Philippians 2 says, Someday at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ephesians 1 says there's the summing up of all these things that when all things have been handed over, Paul says in Corinthians, then comes the end. 
but it was not yet fulfilled in this moment. And yet in their mockery, they anticipated and mocked what was actually true. Jesus is the king. Jesus will come to reign. Though rightfully a king, Jesus is mocked by the seeming rulers of his day and the leaders of his own people who joined together to condemn him, though he was innocent. Just a quick aside on this. There's been, uh, I was reading an article even last night, there's rejection of these accounts in the gospel and said that, well, these were written by people who in the aftermath of the Romans' conquest in AD 70, they wanted to sort of ride the tide of, of envy and jealousy and hatred toward the Jews. So they composed these accounts long after the, effect, after the fact and twisted them to make it sound like it was the Jews' fault instead of the Romans. Acts makes it clear that both are at fault, right? The rulers of the Gentiles and the rulers of the Jews joined together to unjustly murder Jesus for sins of which he was falsely accused, but in reality he bore the sins of the people. The reason that people don't want to acknowledge that blame is they feel that in it is a justification to mistreat people of Jewish descent. But the reality is, if that were true, then it would also be a justification to mistreat people of Roman descent. And we see, ironically, in Mark's own words, that it's the Roman soldier who recognizes who Jesus is. And so you have Romans who are unjust, Pilate, the people who imprisoned Paul in the book of Acts, others as well, who want to save face, uh, maintain stability, advance their own causes. Some of them are looking for bribes in the book of Acts. And then you have honorable Roman soldiers, like the one, the centurion here, who does his job, but then recognizes this man is not who they say they are. This man truly is the son of God, not a God, not one of many gods, the son of the one true God. In the same way, there are Jewish people, primarily the leaders, who are directly and primarily responsible for the murder, the crucifixion of Jesus. And there are also people who are followers of Jesus who are standing there, who are Jewish, who are not calling for his death. So the question is not a question of ethnicity. Let's condemn all the people who were in any way attached to this event. It's a question of belief. The people who did not believe, who violated the law, Roman and Jewish alike, who perpetrated injustice and murder, they are the ones who are condemned, and rightly so. Now, that doesn't mean that it's our job to sort that out and punish them in some way, you know, all of those sorts of things. But the simple fact that the Bible condemns the people who condemn Jesus does not mean that the Bible, the New Testament, is anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. It's simply the fact that here are the people who condemned God, uh, God's Son, and God likewise condemned them for their sinful actions. And we too, were we there, would stand condemned with them because all of us, whether we were standing there mocking Jesus, rejecting him, or whatever else, all of us have contributed to the sins of the world that are the basis and the necessity and the reason Jesus had to come to deal with sin in the first place. So if we're honest, this isn't about Jews and Romans. This is about everyone in the whole world standing guilty because our sin were the reason Jesus had to die. Follow the Son of God who received mercy from God, verses 21 through 26. The Romans make Simon of Cyrene carry the cross since Jesus could not. 
We know very little about Simon. It says here that he's the father of Rufus and Alexander. There is a Rufus mentioned by Paul in Romans 16 as a fellow worker. Uh, Perhaps that's the same man. We don't know for sure. Here's this man who seemingly comes from nowhere. The Romans say, hey, you're going to carry this. And God uses this as some small mercy because Jesus is too weak to carry the cross himself. God gives similarly mercy and strength for Jesus to refuse the wine that would ease his pain. In, con- in connection with his earlier statement in Mark 14:25, I will never again drink the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus does not take what might have eased his pain because of the statement he's earlier made to the disciples and looking to the hope of what is yet to come. God gives Jesus mercy to endure the pain as the scriptures fulfilled. The the men are casting lots for his clothes. He's crucified in agony upon the cross and God gives him the grace to endure it because the reality is in his power as God, he didn't have to stay on that cross. And yet he did. And in fact, the crowd is going to taunt him and say, come down. We'll see that in just a moment. Small mercies, though they might seem, God's helping of his son in the person of Simon and the strength given to keep his word were further evidences that Jesus was the son of God. He did not abandon him even in that moment. Follow further the son of God who endured mocking from sinners as he was crucified. Jesus is crucified innocently among robbers. He trades places with a murderer and he's crucified next to some robbers. Verses 27 and 28. He's mocked about the foretelling he had given of his resurrection. They misunderstood his words. Ha, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. They mocked the good he has done. He saved others. He can't save himself. They bargained much like Satan. We'd believe if you came down. Why did Jesus come? to preach the gospel so that men might believe. In that moment, perhaps, is the greatest temptation at all. They said, we'll believe if you come down. Reveal your power. Come down off the cross. Don't do the thing that God said you must do. And everyone will turn and believe. You can usher in the kingdom. And there doesn't have to be a delay. And it can all happen right now. And in that, we hear the words of Satan. Bow down before me, and all the kingdoms of the earth will be yours. And by God's grace, Jesus says no. This is the same unbelief of the generation that he has lamented throughout the gospel account. The Son of God endures the cross, despising the shame and overcoming Satan's temptations. He accomplishes salvation in this act, mysterious though it is. Deuteronomy 21 says, If there is one who hangs on a tree, he is cursed. Take him down before the observation of the Sabbath. Galatians 3.13 highlights this fact for us where Paul is talking about what Christ accomplished in the crucifixion. He says this in Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And then also in Acts chapter 5, verse 30, we see a similar recognition of what God is accomplishing here. Acts 5, verse 30, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. 
He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Follow the Son of God who died according to the Father's will. We saw this in chapter 9, verse 31 of, of Mark. We see here the darkness covers the land for three hours. There's the, the song that says um, that the earth did not look when Christ the mighty maker died for man, the creature's sin. Jesus in that moment is God forsaken. He never stops being God. The bond of the Trinity is not destroyed. And yet in that moment, in a mysterious way that no theologian has adequately explained, God pours out his wrath against his own son who is yet God and also man. And as man, he can die. As God, he can bear the weight of the wrath of God's anger against sin. And Jesus in that moment cries out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who deserved to be forsaken? The murderers who schemed to murder Jesus, the murderer who was let free, the robbers, the crowd, those were the ones who deserved to be condemned, not Jesus. And yet, God pours out his wrath against sin against his own son. There are two ways to see this. Unbelievers mock this as a fairy tale about the worst act of child abuse in the conceivable history of the universe. But those of us who understand what it is that God was doing there see God's mercy, God's love that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Only God could deal with the wrath of an infinite God. Only man could die. Only one who is man and God, son of man, son of God, united in one person, could in that moment take the penalty of sin so that there was any hope whatsoever of you and I not bearing God's wrath for our sin. Jesus is still God and yet bears the sins of many. The crowd still misunderstood who he was, but a few saw the truth and believed, including this Roman soldier. Let me turn back to a few passages and read them for you. Mark chapter 3, verse 11. The unclean spirits saw him and would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. Matthew 5, verse 7. The demoniac comes up. What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Chapter 8, verse 29. Peter says, You are the Christ. Chapter 9, verse 7. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Chapter 10, verses 47 and 48. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Chapter 11, verse 17. Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den? And now here in this moment, a Gentile, in this moment, the vision of God for what was supposed to be accomplished through his people is accomplished in that his son dies and a Gentile believes. Just like the blind beggar sees more clearly than all the scholars of Israel, 
the fisherman who is often wrong is right in that moment when he says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. The religious leaders and the people in power are blind to the reality of who Jesus is and refuse to accept it. And a soldier standing there says, surely this man was the Son of God. So the question from this passage is, what are you going to do with the Son of God? Reject him as a madman or follow him as your Lord? Those are the only two reasonable options. You can't have him as a good teacher, like some of the Jews today and the deists of old and various other groups. You can't have him as just a prophet, like Islam or Mormonism or all of the other false religions of the world. He is your Lord or he is nothing at all. We learn from Peter's example to likewise entrust ourselves to God when we face suffering. We learn from Paul's words that we too will follow in Jesus' footsteps. But until we first know him as the Son of God, we will never have the power to follow him as we should. Look at the trajectory of Peter's life. Peter says, yes, I'm following you. And then he falls away. But then he sees Jesus die. The risen Jesus appears to him and commissions him again for ministry. Then he's ready to take the gospel out to the world. You say, I, I, I struggle with telling people about Jesus. One of two possibilities. Either you don't know him or the reality of what God has done through him has not sunk in. Because if you say, I don't know him, so how can I tell people about them? Well, obviously the first step is you have to start following him yourself. But if you say, I do know and follow him, but you say, but I can't tell people about him, then you don't understand what God has accomplished here because if God had the power to orchestrate the events of history so that Jesus' death accomplishes the salvation of the world, God has the power to help you talk to your neighbor about him. And if God had the power to help Jesus to endure the cross, God has the power to help you endure whatever rejection you face because you tell people about Jesus. And whatever difficulty you encounter in life, because you follow him faithfully as one of his disciples. Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him. And we focus on the shame part and we're like, this is scary, this is difficult, this could be hard, this could go badly. And Jesus says, who are you concerned about? My approval or the approval of the people around you? If Jesus can stay up on that cross... If he can accomplish God's purpose, then God's power that backs the proclamation of the gospel is what stands behind it every time you and I say, hey, here's Jesus, I want you to know him. Do you know him? And if you do know him, follow him, and in following him, he will give you the power to tell people about him and to follow him day by day. If he is your Lord also, we ought to marvel at the goodness of God that Jesus died in your place, in my place. There's a debt that we cannot pay, a statement of condemnation that we can't undo that Paul talks about in Galatians, and God solves the problem for us in a way that we couldn't do ourselves. You can't save yourself. I can't save myself. No one can save themselves. God makes it possible through what Jesus did. We ought to be amazed at this. You know, we sing that song, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. And the reality is we sing that song, but a lot of times we're first of all not amazed 
And we're second of all, not really convinced we were all that bad. But if we see the depth of our sin, I was a murderer, a thief, a lustful person, a greedy person, a selfish person, a sinner, but Jesus died for me, we will stand amazed. people say oh well you know but then people won't have a good concept of themselves and their self-esteem will be low and all these things that song that says for such a worm as I adequately expresses the sort of attitude we're supposed to have when we marvel at what God did to us God was exalted and he bent low so that you and I could be saved and if we don't marvel at that and we often don't why because we're too busy shopping on Amazon and doing our jobs and trying to get homework done and whatever else, enjoying retirement, trying to find our next job, spending time with family, going for a walk. None of these things are in and of themselves inherently sinful, but to the extent that they distract us and we forget about the amazing thing that God accomplished in this, we got to take a step back and say, Am I amazed? Am I grateful? And how does that affect the way that I live today? Because as I said or prayed, I forget which, earlier today, the only difference between you and me is that we do the exact same things as lost people, but we just don't swear and cheat and whatever while we're doing them. That's not what God called us to as believers. God says we're supposed to be walking through life grateful for what God has done for us, dedicated to what God calls us to do, recognizing our lives are short and we have but this brief moment to serve Him. And we so often forget that. Have you begun to follow the Son of God? I think all of us would say yes. Are we following him the way that we ought? And I think all of us, if we're honest, have to say probably not. But by God's grace, we'll take that next step in telling people about Jesus, in drawing closer to God in prayer, in being encouraged to follow God in fellowship with other believers, in asking ourselves day by day, Lord, what does it mean for me to really follow after you? Because it's easy to say, yeah, I follow Jesus. Okay, what does that practically look like in our day-to-day -day lives? Well, I read my Bible. Great. There's people damned to hell that read their Bibles every day because they're scholars. Well, I don't swear at people. Great. Same thing. I... And the list of things that we put of what it means to follow Jesus is quite often not the things that Jesus put. What did Jesus say? If you follow me, don't be ashamed of me. Tell people about me. Do what I've said. And somehow in the church, we've often turned that into look this way, don't spend time with sinners, and try to stay out of trouble till you get to heaven. That's not what Jesus said. And I struggle with this because as many of you did, I grew up in a Christian home, so you, you go to church because that's what you're supposed to do. And you read your Bible because that's what you're supposed to do. And you stay out of trouble because that's what you're supposed to do. But if that's all we do, that at some point we're going to say, you know what? 
I'm tired of staying out of trouble. There's some interesting things I could go do out in the world. And I'm tired of reading my Bible because what does it have to do with today? And I'm tired of going to church because, you know, honestly, I would rather sleep in and there's lots of stuff I need to do in my house. I'm not saying most of you would do this, but if the only reason you're not doing it is because someone at church would nag you about it, hopefully we aspire to something more than that, right? What is it that God calls us to do? To follow Jesus, to follow God rather, Jesus who is the Son of God, if he went to the point of the cross to accomplish what God had called him to do, how far are you and I willing to go when it comes to things like saying no to temptation. Hebrews says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. Have you been in such agony over your sin that you sweat drops of blood like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? If the answer is no, then you and I have not, by God's grace, gone as far as God wants us to go and say no to sin. A lot of times we're like, I've said no to sin three days in a row and, and it's been really hard, so now I'm going to take a break and say yes to the sin to relieve the strain. Jesus went his entire life without saying yes to sin. Which is harder, going three days or 33 years? We say no to temptation because we are following in the steps of Jesus. We say yes to going and talking to people in difficult places who don't like us because that's what Jesus did. We go and we minister to people who can do nothing for us because that's what Jesus did. What did the Pharisees do? They said, we're going to go and have dinners with people who are going to invite us back over to dinners. We're going to do things so people see us doing them. Jesus said, I'm going to do things that people don't know anything about or if they know about them, they're going to be like, why is he doing that? That's either wrong or foolish or both. So, do we need to read our Bibles and pray and go to church and all that? I think yes. But we should not hide away from sinners. We should not be satisfied to coast along in our Christian lives. We should not just be marking time until we die. We should not be caught up in the dreams and visions of the world around us. We should follow Jesus who's the Son of God and he's the only one worth following. He's the one worth following with everything you've got. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for what Jesus has done in our place. Sober our thoughts as we consider it. Stir our hearts to follow you more. Not so that we just get hyped up in a moment, but the sort of steady commitment that follows you day in and day out. The sort of diligent devotion that perseveres the sort of walk with you that's because we love you and not just because we're afraid of you, mighty though you are. Help us to understand better each day and in this week what it means to follow Jesus as the Son of God. We pray this in Christ's name.